Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them to the book of Revelation. And this morning we will be in chapter 9, all 21 verses. Chapter 9 of the book of Revelation. For those of you who don't know, Revelation is the very last book in the Bible. Now, if you're, uh, as you're turning there, let me just briefly give a reminder of where we've been so far. So we've been looking at the book of Revelation in seven sections or, or seven groups of seven. And each one of those groups of seven or cycles of seven look at the same event. Right? So the unfolding of and the finale of church history. But they each look at it from a different perspective. So first were the seven churches. It's a, a picture of judgment beginning in the house of God and the Lord shepherding His church with encouragements and warnings so that they will overcome. And that was verses 1, 2, and 3, or chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapters 4 and 5, we, we saw a vision of the heavenly temple, the heavenly throne room, and more specifically, a vision of the one who is seated upon that throne. And you remember when John sees the vision, there's a, a problem. It's a glorious place, a glorious throne, a glorious temple. But the one seated on the throne has in his hand a scroll and it's got seven seals and no one is found worthy to open them. All of heaven laments because the seals in this scroll represents the carrying out of the will of God in the world and nobody is able to do it. John is weeping. And then somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, one who is worthy to open the scroll. He comes forward. John opens his eyes and he sees a lamb as was slain. A lamb, slain lamb, who alone is able to open the scrolls, to take the seal and carry out the will of God in the world. And it reminds us that everything that happens, everything that comes in this life happens under the authority of Christ and the will of God. And that's important because in the next two chapters, chapter 6 and 7, the seals are broken. We see the suffering of God's people in the world. As God's kingdom advances, His people suffer from persecution, from economic difficulties, and from all of the pains that come living in a fallen world. In the fifth seal... God's people who have been killed for their witness, killed for their faith, are crying out for justice. They say, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? And then in the sixth seal, they begin to get it. God begins to judge those who have refused to repent. And when He does, they cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But then they ask a question. The question is, who can stand? which is answered in chapter 7, where John sees a great multitude sealed, secured, and standing before the throne of God. And you see in this, in this section that the, the terror of the world, the thing that makes them tremble, the wrath of God and the Lamb seated on the throne, is the same thing that the saints rejoice in. We're longing for the day when the Lord will come. For those outside of Christ, it is a day of fear. Then chapter 8, verse 1, judgment finally does come. And it comes in a dreadful silence. And that's the end of cycle 2. Cycle 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago, it begins with the first 
four of seven trumpets, trumpets that are brought from before the throne of God. And these trumpets bring calamity to the earth. And it's a picture of what it means to live in a world that God created good, but has been corrupted by the stain of sin. The point is to remind us and show us that this world, though it was created good, though God created it perfect, it's fallen. And death has come and cursing has come. And because of those things, because of the wrath of God against evil, those who live in this world will suffer. And those who are outside of Christ suffer worst of all. I mean, this world is hard at the best of times, isn't it? It's unbearable and even soul-crushing at the worst. It's just hard to live. It's painful to live in a world that is fallen. And so God forbids people to be satisfied here if they find their satisfaction in anything but Him. It's why work seems so pointless and relationships so hard and life so futile and death so disturbing and pleasure so fleeting. It shows us all of these things are inadequate to satisfy the, the human soul. I mean, dogs are content. You have a dog, it's content. If you have a cat, it's content. But us, we were made for more than dogs and cats. We were made for God. And as Augustine said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in Him. Living in a fallen world with all of its physical and material trials and challenges, one of the things that does is it hems us all in, us and the world around us, hems us in and reminds us, again, not just as believers, but everyone who lives in this world, that they were made for God, that this present state of the world is not how He created things to be. I mean, this life is just a constant, disappointing, deceiving death, isn't it? It's meant to point a lost world to the Lord God so that they would see the, the futility of this life and every time they see it, think there has to be more than this and recognize the more than this is found in Jesus Christ, the one bright spot in all of this universe. That's the, the symbolism of the first of these four trumpets in cycle three. And then at the end of chapter eight, an eagle flies overhead announcing woe for the three trumpets that are to come. Which brings us to our text this morning. We read of the first trumpet in Revelation 9, verses 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in the days, in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like 
breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is an encouragement to your people always. And I pray, Lord, it would be encouraging this morning and that you would help us to understand, Lord, how this possibly could be a blessing to us, Lord. It is. You've told us that it is. It's for our good that we ought to hear these words and and understand we are blessed. And I pray that you would help me to preach in such a way that that is clear, Lord. Help us to understand. And Lord, I I pray that you would make up for the great lack in me and in my preaching, Lord. And that you would help us all to understand your word. And not just to understand it, Lord, but to live accordingly. That we would hear it. That we would believe it. And that we would be changed in light of it. Lord, it's not just enough to hear and to learn something new. But Lord, it ought to affect how we think and how we live. And I pray that would be the case this morning. That we would live in light of eternity. That we would live, Lord, with a greater resolve in our faithfulness to Christ. That we wouldn't be afraid, Lord, in the world around us. Knowing that, Lord, you are in charge over all things. Lord, help us. And be with us. It's to you we look now with eager expectation to be helped from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned already, but it is hard to live in a fallen world, isn't it? We experience this almost every day. Death, futility, pointlessness, pain, all are daily reminders that this good world has been stained with sin. The stain goes much deeper than the surface. It's more than just, you know, the ground is cursed. It's more than just there's natural disasters. It's more than just there's disease and the world is subjected to futility and our work is hard and our bodies get old and break down. There's more going on than that. And we all know this. There are spiritual forces at work. Angels and demons, plots and plans, a prince of the power of the air. There is always more going on than meets the eye. And these next trumpets, trumpets five and six and seven, they peel back that physical material layer of our lives and show what is taking place in the spiritual realm. And where the first four trumpets were focused on the wicked suffering from natural causes brought about by sin, these next trumpets show us the spiritual slavery and suffering of the wicked in a fallen world. Uh, It shows us their spiritual condition as, as time marches on towards the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And because those spiritual matters are so much more important, and because the consequences are so much longer lasting... Right, This material world is temporal. The spirit is immortal. These spiritual sufferings are far 
graver than even the worst of worldly disasters, which is why the eagle cries out, woe, woe, woe for what is to come. Whatever an earthly trial is, the spiritual trials will be worse. The the lightest spiritual trial is worse than the greatest physical trial. I mean, how take all of the suffering in this life, wars and famines and sickness and death, how does that compare to one moment of hell? It doesn't. And what we see coming are those spiritual enemies of the soul. We're about to get a glimpse into those things, but listen, not for the church and not for those who love the Lord. This is not like what Elijah and his servants saw in Second Kings. You remember the story in 2 Kings. Elijah is surrounded. Uh, One of the northern kings has sent an army to capture him. But Elisha was not afraid because surrounding this earthly army were the heavenly armies of angelic forces on chariots of fire. Now, of course, Elisha's servant, he couldn't see this. His, His eyes were blind to it and he was terrified until Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And his eyes were opened and when he looked around, he saw all of this host of heaven on the hillside and he wasn't afraid anymore because those who were with him were greater, far greater in number and in power than those who were against him. And so he wasn't afraid anymore. He understood there's a lot more going on than just what I can see with my eyes. Well, the same thing is being portrayed to us here in Revelation 9, but it's not a heavenly army come to save the faithful. This is a glimpse of the havoc that those Demonic armies bring to bear on God's enemies. The third cycle, remember, is viewing the unfolding of history from the perspective of those who dwell upon the earth. And if you remember, those who dwell upon the earth, it's used in the book of Revelation always to refer to those who are worldly. It's not everyone who lives on planet earth. It's those who love the world and who love the things of the world as opposed to those who love the Lord and whose citizenship is in heaven. And so if you need any proof of this, you say, I'm not not convinced that that's... Well, verse 4 says the locusts don't touch any of those who have been sealed. And later on in verse 20 and 21, only those who have not repented are the ones being affected. So clearly, this chapter makes a distinction. We're not talking about believers here. We're talking about the lost. And so it's a picture. It's a glimpse behind the scenes to... What's going on in the realm of darkness affecting the citizens of that kingdom? We get a fuller picture of it soon when the arrival of certain beasts and prophets and prostitutes. But here it begins, and it isn't pretty. This is demonic activity at work in the world, and and as you'll see, it brings incredible suffering, almost sadistic suffering on those who will not belong to Christ. It begins with the star that falls from the heavens. And obviously, this is the accuser. This is Satan. In verse 11, he is the destroyer, Abaddon and Apollyon. He is the king of this demonic horde, and he is given a key to their abyss. And it reminds us of Luke 10, 18, doesn't it? You might not know the reference, but you probably thought of the passage. It's where Jesus says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says, I saw when he was cast down. 
in Luke 10, 18, it's, it's actually a reference to the disciples casting out demons and the disciples having victory over them. But it's a past tense event, isn't it? So what do you mean? Jesus doesn't say, I will see Satan fall from heaven. He says, I was there when it happened. So it's not something that's going to take place in the future. And this trumpet, this fifth trumpet, really shows us what the evil one has been doing. Now, it's symbolic, of course, but but the symbolism helps us to grasp the reality. The symbolism helps us to see the unseen. And what's about to happen in this is 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 a picture of the demonic and its influence in the world. And what we ought to be thinking, at least in the back of our minds, is it doesn't always look this way. You know, one of the names for the devil is the name Lucifer. Do you know what Lucifer means? Angel of light. He doesn't come as, you know, a two-horned, pitchfork-tailed, goat-footed guy in a red suit. He comes as an angel of light. In the garden, you remember, he promised freedom and deliverance. He came as a deliverer. He came promising, you're oppressed, but listen to me and you'll be set free. He doesn't come with shackles in his hands. He even can look benign or helpful or even kind. But if you were to see it with heavenly eyes, what does it really look like? Look something like this, what we just read. It'd be terrifying. No one would want to go anywhere near it. It's a, a horrific stuff of nightmares kind of vision that John receives. And it, and it shows us just how frightening and terrible Satan and his minions truly are. And so, verse 1, the angel has fallen like a star, like a shooting star from heaven to earth. And when he did, he unleashes his hellish host. He has a key to do so. He has, he has authority over the demons. And he opens the abyss. When he does, a black smoke comes out and it's so thick that the sun is dimmed and the sky is darkened. Now, is this as some have thought, uh, maybe a volcanic eruption? Have you heard this? Possibly a nuclear war? Is it a a supernatural darkening of the two-thirds of the light that remains? Why is this detail, right, smoke coming out of the pit, darkening the sky and the sun, why is that given at all? Is it uh, significant? You know, the Bible gives about a verse and a half to it. Is this something we ought to be paying attention to? Or is this just what happens when you open a bottomless pit? Now, how many of you have ever read how often or noticed how often in the New Testament the devil is described as working in darkness, as obscuring the light? It's what he does, isn't it? He blinds the eyes. He, he snatches away the seed before it can take root. He deceives and he twists and he lies. He is the prince of darkness over the kingdom of darkness. And it's into this darkness and confusion and and a morass of chaos that the swarm of locusts come. You say, I'm having trouble tracking. Well, let, let me make it plain. The more confusion, the more smoke, the more light and truth are obscured, the more susceptible the people are to the demonic. They lose their bearings. They lose their discernment. They lose even a sense of the law written on the heart. And when that happens, they are more vulnerable to deception. 
Given the way the world is right now, it's easy to see this at work, isn't it? People do not know their right hand from their left. Every anchor of truth has been cut loose. All forms of stability, they've been undermined. People have become unmoored from reality and they've been left adrift in an ocean of confusion. And when someone is adrift and confused, any voice promising stability is like land on the horizon. It doesn't matter if the land is shaped like a snake and speaks with a hiss. Anything is better than being lost at sea. And it's into this confusion that evil influence thrives. And of course, it's never presented as destructive. It's never presented as evil. Again, think of the garden when the snake comes to deceive. What does he say? He doesn't tell Eve, I'm here to kill you, even though he was. That was his goal. He doesn't say, why don't you rebel against God, that tyrant? No, that's exactly what he tricked her into doing. He didn't say, I've come to drag you down into the darkness. You remember what he said. I've come to set you free. God's holding you back. He's holding out on you. He said, don't eat from that tree because he doesn't want you to be truly free. But if you really want to be like God, go and eat from the tree. That's what he's stopping you from doing. You want to reach your true potential? You want to be truly human? You want to really be like God? Reach out and take and eat. That was the promise. The result was slavery and cursing, wasn't it? They didn't become more like God. They became far less like God. They were cursed and afflicted and enslaved to sin. And that's what these locusts bring. They bring affliction. Because that's what the evil one does. You read, it's a strange swarm of locusts, isn't it? They don't eat green. They don't eat the grass. They don't eat the trees. We know that because these aren't real physical demon locusts anyway. They are minions of the evil one carrying out his will in the world, and his will is to destroy. And notice this, they're forbidden from afflicting those who are sealed. They cannot touch those who belong to the Lord. They can only afflict the worldly. They can only afflict the lost. And they don't afflict them physically, do they? How is their affliction described? It is described as the torment that makes men wish they were dead. It's torment in their spirits and in their souls. That's the kind of torment that makes men seek death. Nobody seeks death because of physical pain and physical ailment. Nobody. And if they do, it's only because that physical suffering has caused them to give up hope and despair. People despair because they have no hope. They despair of life because all light seems to be gone and the future is bleak and pointless. Shame crushes them, guilt weighs them down. The world becomes nothing more than a stage for their suffering and all they want to do is die. Isn't that the kind of torment that afflicted Job? The kind of torment the devil brought against him? Now, of course, he was a believer. And the emphasis here in Revelation is not on the believers, but on those who are worldly. However, the affliction is the same, and the despair is the same, and the accuser is the same. And how did the devil deal with Job? He brings him to the brink. He makes Job believe that God has turned his back on him. He brought Job's friends near to berate him and to add to his burden with their advice. He took every ounce of joy away and left Job seeking death. He's not, not suicidal. 
but wishing he had never been born, wishing he would die, but death escaped him. And yes, he he lost everything he had. It only compounded his grief. But here you see how the evil one works. You see how he works in the life of Job. And if he cannot snare a man with trinkets and distractions, then he parades constantly before that man's mind that life is meaningless and the only escape is death. He makes men wish to die. And this is a a blight upon the world outside of Christ. A pervasive hopelessness brought about by the evil one. A hopelessness that those outside of Christ, they can't answer. One that makes men search for death and, and not find it. And this is not, as some have crassly said, you know, people will try to take their lives but won't die because of the torment the locusts inflict. I remember one person said people will, you know, jump off a building and hit the ground and get up and keep going. That's, that's silly. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. No, this, this is people who want to die for hopelessness but do not want to end their lives. They're utterly and completely without hope in the world. I mean, how many people do you know that this would describe? Maybe some of you here, this describes you. Terribly depressed. All you want to do is die. You know, it doesn't look demonic, does it? This kind of despair, it doesn't look like nightmarish creatures afflicting the souls of men. But that's exactly what it is. It often it just looks like this is just the way it is doesn't look this bad. I, I remember once I saw a painting, and the painting was a person trying to capture with a brush what this felt like to endure. And it was, a, it was a dark and hideous monster consuming another. That's what this description here is capturing with these locusts. Crowns showing their authority, faces like men, their intelligence, hair like a woman that shows their deceptive Beauty that hides a hideous beast. Teeth that tear apart an armor that is iron and impenetrable. This is something that cannot be easily overcome. And outside of Christ, it cannot be overcome. It's not a place anyone wants to be under this soul-destroying assault. But it is the place the evil one will take you. And if you haven't realized this yet, then realize it now. This is all there is outside of Christ. I mean, some people suffer the thought of it. Some people ignore it until the very end. But everyone who does not trust in the Lord, this is where they end up eventually. And it is dark indeed. It's not a place anybody wants to be. And it shows you how sinister the adversary is. There's a difference. Let me say this first. There's a difference between this kind of hopelessness and the the kind that faces a Christian. Because when when a Christian faces this same kind of accusation, and they do, well, Job's a good example. What does Job say? I know that my Redeemer lives. Though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. I have hoped in Him. He at least has a sword with which to defend himself. If you're outside of Christ, you've got nothing when this comes. Just, you know, distractions to turn your mind away to something else. But no real ability to overcome. Just something that will make you stop thinking about it. 
In Christ, there's hope. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. That's the tragedy of this, of this chapter. And it shows you how, how sinister the adversary is, doesn't it? How does the devil treat his most loyal servants? Promises them freedom and gives them slavery. Promises them purpose and leaves them empty husks. He, is, he, he rewards his most faithful subjects with cruel torment and despair. He gives them a life bereft of life. What would you think of, of, a, of, a, of a ruler who treated his most faithful servants like sometimes you see in a movie and if they really want to show someone's evil, they have a total disregard for the life of their most loyal servants. Do you know where that idea comes from? It comes from the evil one. He cannot lash out at his enemies. He's too weak, so he strikes out at his allies. He and his, his horde are beings of pure hatred and rage and malice, and he is the most vile of villains conceivable. I mean, the most wicked men look like angelic beings compared to the destroyer. He is a hater of mankind who masquerades as their friend. And whenever he is given power over men, he disdains them and uses them and discards them like a worthless rag, joyful only at their eternal suffering. You wonder, what makes the devil happy? When you die and go to hell. When he can stop you from being saved. When he can come and take the seed away. He's not your friend. And if you're outside of Christ, he is your king. If you ever wondered what's one reason why you should come to Christ, it's to be free from this. Certainly, he has no friends among men. And seeing the hold of the evil one in the world today and the confusion, it, it would be easy to despair, wouldn't it? It looks as though, if you think about this, this is what the kingdom of darkness looks like, and you look at the world around you and you think, well, it looks like it's prevailed, hasn't it? It looks as though the Lord has been driven back and the prince of the power of the air, now he is the one who rules supreme. Maybe not over the church, but definitely over the world around us. Doesn't it look like that's the case? The world is in unrestrained and the unfettered power of the evil one. Well, if that's where the story stopped, we would have no reason for anything but despair. But it's not the end. It's not even close. So if you go back to Job, in the opening of the book, you learn something else about the power of the evil one. Satan comes and he stands before God and they have, have a conversation about Job. And then Satan is given power to harm him and to touch his joy and his wealth and his health and take it away, but he is forbidden from killing Job. Satan cannot take Job's life because life belongs to the Lord alone. In fact, everything that the devil does to Job, he has to get permission first to do it. And so even here, this great and terrifying horde of locusts is restrained, isn't it? They've got limits. They can go so far and no further. They're under the sovereign control of God. Their, their time is limited. Five months. It's not long, is it? The lifespan of a locust, I don't know if you know this, is about five months. Their power is limited. They can torment, but they cannot kill. They cannot take life. And this is just a, a reminder to us that the work of Satan, great as it is, powerful as it is, I mean, it's not, it outmatches every one of us, that's for sure. But it's no match for the Lord God. And not only is He no match, there is no contest. When God says jump, He jumps. When God says you will not kill, He kills no one. 
When God says only for this long and only this far, Satan and his minions do not exceed those boundaries a single second or a single centimeter. God is always in control. Now at this point, it's, it's tempting to see man as the victim here. How can he stand against the, the horde of hell? He can't. Well, let me make it clear. This is not the case. Man here is not a victim. You wonder, why is this? Why is the devil and the evil ones unleashed? Well, man is not hopeless because they're born into a fallen world. And man is not hopeless because they are afflicted by the devil. Mankind is hopeless and in darkness because they reject the light and harden themselves against their only hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us this himself in John 3.18. Light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light. And because man loved Darkness rather than light, they ran away from the light. And God gave them over to the darkness they desired. And so all of the spiritual darkness they endure and are allowed to endure. You say, why does this happen? It's God's judgment on their sin. But listen, the devil and his army, dreadful as they are, it's far from the worst thing that can happen to an unrepentant person. There is a far greater threat. There's a threat that makes the horde of locusts look like butterflies. And that threat enters into the scene in the sixth trumpet blast, verses 13 through 19. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and suffering coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Just like the sixth seal in chapter 6 and 7, it had three scenes. The dissolution of the earth, followed by the sealing of the 144,000 and the great multitude standing before the Lord. In the same way, this is the first of three scenes that are going to be coming in the sixth trumpet. This is one of three. And it may surprise you to hear me say this, but this is not a demonic horde. And certainly this is not some human army. This, the 200 million, is the host of the army of the Lord that brings justice and does justice in the world. And you say, why do you say that? I say it because these have authority to do what only God can do. They have the authority to take life. And they do it in ways that God has Himself demonstrated in the past. They do it with plagues of fire and of smoke and of sulfur. So, so you see what's happening here. The army of the... Uh, what's happening here is a contrast between the army of the evil one and the army of the Lord. And really, there's no comparison. The, the, the locust swarm was large, yes. But this is a host beyond numbering. 200 million, probably not the size 
probably an expression to say you can't even count how many there are. And where the locusts had breastplates of iron, these have armor of sapphire and of fire. The locusts had men's faces and lion's teeth and women's hair and crowns. These have the heads of lions, like their king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's not a a terrifying image, is it? I mean, the locusts, they were the things of nightmares. But these, though certainly awesome to behold, they're not nightmarish creatures. There's a, a nobility to them, isn't there? If you were to see this creature, you wouldn't think runaway in terror. You would think awestruck. Why? Because they belong to the Lord. And so they're not grotesque or sordid, but they're no less frightening. And so you see in every way, in number, in appearance, in splendor, and in power, they are greater than the army of the evil one. The, lo- uh, the locusts had scorpion tails. Maybe you've been wondering about the tails. Now, have you ever been stung by a scorpion? It's painful. It cannot kill you. Scorpions are not lethal. There's 25 species that are potentially lethal, but if you're a healthy adult, you're going to survive the sting. You might wish you were dead, but scorpions are not deadly. Do you know what are deadly? Snakes. If a poisonous snake bit you in that ancient world before anti-venom, you were dead. So these, they don't have the power to torment. They have the power to kill. And now the point can be made. Remember, remember, this is from the perspective of those who are perishing. The devil is powerful in the world. And he is. And his army can do many awful things. But if you're going to be afraid of someone, if there is someone that that you should tremble before, it's not the devil. It's the Lord. The power of hell can only make you wish you were dead. The Lord has authority to take your life away. You know, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I saw once where a skeptic went through the whole Bible and he made a list. And uh, and it was he was cynical in doing it, but the list was how many people the devil has killed versus how many people the Lord has killed. And when he went through it, the devil had a tally of 10. And those 10 were uh, Job's sons and daughters that Satan had to get permission for in the first place. And the Lord, just counting the numbers, was attributed with 2,038,344. But anyone who knows anything about Scripture knows those numbers aren't true. It's not 10 deaths attributed to Satan and 2 million plus attributed to God. It's zero attributed to Satan and all of them attributed to the Lord. He is the one who holds in his hand the power of life and death. And you have to understand whenever anybody dies, it's not that Satan's come and taken them out. It's the Lord who has decreed, now your time has come. And it's God who takes the life away. He gives life, He takes it away. This this army comes to bring that justice of God in the world. The wages of sin is death. This army is the paymaster. We're told how they do it. With fire and with smoke and sulfur. and, and, And it's a picture again of a final judgment about to be unleashed. But this army has been on the march before. This army is symbolic of the judgment of God. Yes, the end times judgment, but also previous cataclysmic judgments in the world. And they've shown up at least four times in Scripture. Noah, 
and the ark. Everyone in the world except for eight were slain for their sin, drowned in the waters. In Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and sulfur rained down and turned those cities and their inhabitants to ash. And only Lot and his two daughters were spared. In Canaan, we are told the army of the Lord went before the people. The people in the land of Canaan had become too sinful for the Lord to tolerate them any longer, and so He didn't. And in the destruction of Jerusalem, the city was laid waste and His people slaughtered in an intense and divine fury carried out at the hands of the Romans. What did all of these judgments have in common? Great and unrestrained sin in the land. It was like a a thermostat. Once it reaches a certain temperature, the furnace kicks in. The Lord stands idle no more, and He pours out His wrath upon them in a a cataclysmic, civilization-ending kind of way. When this happens in time on the earth, it's it's a picture and a reminder of what will come in its fullness in the end. God only, listen, God only allows a place to become so wicked before He visits them with judgment. And the things that bring that about in Scripture, you wonder, what, what, what characterizes a land where this is about to happen? Three things. Violence, the shedding of innocent blood, including and most prominently human sacrifice, sexual immorality, especially homosexuality and other unnatural deviations, And lastly, the rejection of Christ as in the destruction of Jerusalem. And those three sins in particular over and over again in the Bible invite the kind of catastrophic judgment of the Lord where it it's it's almost like a piece of the end times judgment bursts into the present time. And we're not there, but we're close. Leonard Ravenhill said, if God doesn't judge us soon, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom. And that was 40 years ago. And God may bring judgment. He may spare the nations uh, for the sake of His people. We are the salt of the earth. If you ever wondered what that means, it means you have a preserving effect on the place where you are. But, but make no mistake, God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not predicting the the end times judgment. I'm not even predicting a a judgment around the corner. But it is true that God has shown over and over in times past that any nation or people or civilization, once they reach a tipping point of immorality, it brings a divine judgment if it doesn't bring a divine repentance. But that's what this army is symbolic of. The Lord's wrath being poured out against sinners in a calamitous civilization-altering ways. Now now remember, we're not talking about Christians here. We're talking about those who do not know the Lord. We're talking about those who do not honor Him as King. Right? We, we have a hope. We have a hope. When God flooded the world, He saved Noah and his families, his family. When God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, He saved Lot and brought out His people. When God destroyed the Canaanites, His own people inherited the land. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, God's people who were warned escaped the judgment. When these things happen, 
the believers will stand. God will save His people. He will spare them, maybe by bringing them to Himself in a more immediate way. But for those outside of Christ, there's only calamity and judgment and death. Why does God do it? Why does He allow these things to burst in so that people experience this kind of suffering? So that they might turn from idols and turn from self and turn from evil and be saved. He he does it so that they might repent and believe. That's why this world is hard to point people to Christ. That's why the pit is open. Yes, a punishment, but a punishment whose goal is the redemption of the criminal. I always think of Uzzah and the ark. They were bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and and everything about the, the ceremony was disrespectful to the Lord. He said, carry the ark this way. When you do things, this is how you have to do them. And they were just doing whatever they wanted. And the ark was supposed to only be carried on the shoulders and it was on a cart and it began to topple and tip and Uzzah reached out and touched it and he died. Uzzah received justice. Uzzah was struck down. Why? So that everybody else on that great procession would see it and say, we need, to, we need to make things right. And that's exactly what they did. Uzzah received justice. Everybody else, the, the 30,000 who were there, received mercy and were blessed. Because seeing what happened to Uzzah, they stopped, went back, said, we're going to do this right, repented, and came back and brought the ark into Jerusalem the right way. And it was a time of great celebration. And God is doing these things in the world, certainly it's less than what we deserve. And He is doing it so that those who remain would take warning and turn. Verse 20 and 21. This is a very sad two verses. Because all of this is happening. They're suffering in the world because of sin. They're suffering under the futility of living in a fallen world. Satan and his minions have made them despair of life. God has come in judgment and killed some of them. And what's the report at the end? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols and gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries, of their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. They're worshiping the demons who are delighting to kill them. And when they see it, they still won't turn. This is not a hopeful passage, is it? These people who are perishing, they will not repent. They should. They're called to. The turmoil in the world is meant to wake them up and and snap them into reality, spiritual reality, so that they would repent and they would believe. They've had every other hope taken away. They've heard the message. They have had every opportunity. But they harden their hearts and they cling to their idols and they cling to their sins. If you ever wonder just how hard-hearted a person is, here it is. Sometimes, sometimes we say, maybe the Lord will bring somebody very low. And then having been brought very low, they will repent and and turn to him. And sometimes by the grace of God, that happens. But sometimes when that happens, all it does is turn people against the Lord in an even greater way. I think of Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh is under the judgment of God. What does he do? Does he repent? Does he turn? No, he hardens his heart. And, and uh, so much so that when God's people are starting to escape through the, through the sea split in half, he leads his whole army in to kill them and is destroyed. In the Psalm, or in the Proverbs, a man's own way is the cause of his grief, but his heart rages against the Lord. Sometimes when the Lord brings calamity into a person's life to warn them, to wake them up, it doesn't lead to their repentance. It leads to them hardening their hearts and instead clinging even more closely to their sin. I, I remember when there was a shooting here in Fredericton a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago uh, on Brookside Drive. Afterward, do you know what the city rallied around? Where the city looked for comfort and, and, and hope? They rallied around the Pride Parade and clung to that. As this is, this is where we're going to look for the future. They would not repent of their sins or their sexual immoralities or their immoralities or their thefts, but clanged, clung to them all the harder. They held on in one hand. They had the living God warning them to wake them up, and the other a statue of gold, and they chose the gold. They held in one hand eternal life, and in the other... Sexual perversion and murder and theft. And they would rather have their sex and blood and die. It's not a pleasant picture. The fate of the sinner, the fate of the one hardened to God who disbelieves the gospel, who will not turn from sin and will not come to Christ, there is no good news or happy ending. None. A hard life here and hell hereafter. So don't be like those who perish. Don't be like the one who is worldly and lives just for this life. And don't be lumped in with them when this trumpet blows. Every time tragedy strikes, every time your heart is broken, every time that oppression comes and, and pushes your soul into the dirt, I'm speaking to those outside of Christ, every time that happens and calamity overwhelms you and you look and you say, what is wrong with the world? Listen, it is God crying out to you, warning you that you see all of these things. Remember, something worse is coming. Something worse is going to come for those who do not reject their idols or turn from their sin. When you see those things, let it be a reminder to you that a greater destruction, a greater affliction of soul, a greater judgment is coming. But second, and importantly, let those things remind you that God has made a way of escape so that you don't have to endure that judgment. If a bite tastes rotten, you don't have to eat the whole plate. When you see these things in the world, it should strike your conscience so that you say, God, this is not the way the world was meant to be. What Have you done anything about it? And the answer is yes. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is undoing the curse of the law. He is atoning for the sin of His people so that one day all things will be made right again. If you repent and believe, you will participate. So don't be numbered with those who see the wrath of God, who feel the oppression of evil, who live in this fallen world, and yet press on with hard hearts. Humble yourself before the living God. Repent 
and believe and be saved. There's only one hope. And it's not found in this world. It's found in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to strengthen your people so that they would live confidently in the world, knowing that, Lord, they are with you. And the armies of the evil one and the armies of the Lord, they don't come against us, but like Elijah, they surround us for our deliverance and our protection. Lord, we are safe and secure in Christ. Whatever this world would throw at us, it can only take away a trifle. But our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to that day when we go to be with you. And Lord, when all your promises are fulfilled and the world, Lord, that was so hostile and hateful to us here, one day we inherit it anew. Whenever the enemy comes and accusations come, we have a sword to defend ourselves, armor to protect ourselves, a shield of faith that stops the darts. We have hope. Lord, those outside of Christ have no hope, and it's why they feel as though they are full of the arrows, Lord, of guilt and sin and futility and pain and death. Lord, no hope, nor is there any, but in Christ, Lord, our sins forgiven, delivered from the futile way of life, inherited from our forefathers, and we are free. Lord, I want to pray specifically for anyone here who is hard-hearted, who has walked against you and said, no, no, thank you, God, I, I hear the word, but I, I, I love the way I've laid out for me. I love my sin. Lord, show them that it leads to destruction. And Lord, show them, Lord, that it's not worth it. Give them the grace, Lord, to come to your son and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name, who alone holds life and death, who alone holds salvation and condemnation. It's in his name we pray and in his name we hope. Amen.